Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Hello, I'm Nicole Holliday, a linguistics professor at the University of Pennsylvania. And I'm Ben Zimmer, language columnist for The Wall Street Journal. And this is Spectacular Vernacular, a podcast where we not only explore language, we also play with it. This week, our guest is Alex Bellows, who has a book out called The Language Lover's Puzzle Book, right up our alley. And later, we'll try to stump Amanda Ripley, host of Slate's advice podcast, How To, with some language puzzles of our own. So Ben, you know I'm a podcast super fan, right? Yeah, I definitely get that impression. I would say you're a bit of a podcast fiend. You're always talking about some podcasts you've listened to recently. Yeah, I'm that person. <laughs> it's my favorite medium. And I love a lot of the Slate ones, especially Hit Parade and ICYMI and How To. But you know, I like to keep up with current events. So I frequently listen to New York Times The Daily. Recently, though, even they were confused by something that's in the news that's also been of interest to linguists. We got an email about pronunciation. I don't, is it, is it uh, Omicron or Omicron? I mean, I've been saying I think it's Omicron. O. It's like somewhere in between. <laughs> it's neither A uh, nor. Wait, 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 what do you, what do you say? Oh, Omicron, Omicron, Omicron. It's kind of like Omicron, but it's not Omicron. You know what I mean? It's like mm, Omicron. Can you just say it really slowly so we all can get on the same page? Omicron? Omicron, yeah. not Omicron. Yeah, not Omicron. Mm, I mean, I don't think it really matters that much, honestly. Oh boy, all right. Are we going to spend the rest of the episode talking about the new COVID variant? No, 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 no. Let's just stick to the Greek letters, because those are more in our wheelhouse. <laughs> so your latest Wall Street Journal column talks about how the WHO has chosen to name the new COVID variants after Greek letters, basically to avoid confusion, but also the many pitfalls of choosing other types of names. The way that scientists refer to Omicron is B.1.1.529, but who wants to say all those syllables all the time? Yeah, exactly. That whole system with those letters and numbers, that's very unwieldy. But other naming conventions can cause other types of problems. So, of course, naming them geographically can be offensive and can even be damaging to entire countries. I mean, we still refer to the 1918 flu pandemic as the Spanish flu, even though it didn't originate in Spain. I actually wrote about that for The Atlantic last year when Trump and others in his circle were talking about Chinese coronavirus or the Wuhan virus. Yeah, that's, that's not a good system. <laughs> so the Greek alphabet wasn't actually a bad idea for the WHO to use. And it was working really well at first. We were doing fine. We had alpha, beta, gamma, delta, which is unfortunate for Delta Airlines, but mostly fine for everybody else. <laughs> but then we got to some more complicated letters. Yeah, for sure. So for a while there, right after this latest variant was discovered in Southern Africa, people were referring to it as new 
because that would have been the next letter since the last variant of interest that the WHO had identified was mu. And nu follows mu. Although, you know, some people were sticklers for the Greek pronunciation and saying it was me and ni. But in English, we tend to say mu and nu. But, you know, if you say nu, that's confusing because it sounds like N-E-W, right? So the WHO, they clarified they were going to skip nu because it's so easily confused with the word nu, N-E-W. And then they also chose to skip the next letter, which we spell as X-I, and is typically pronounced as Xi, or how would you pronounce that, Nicole? So when I learned the Greek alphabet, I learned it as Psi. I guess prescriptively, it's supposed to be Psi um, with a Psi, Psi with an initial K, yeah, KS. <laughs> and that's a set of consonants that words can't begin in in English. So I thought, oh, maybe that's why they skipped that one. But maybe that's not the whole story. <laughs> well, that certainly, you know, that didn't help. But the the real reason, you know, the WHO had to actually you know, put out a statement clarifying why they did this. And they explained, okay, we're not using new because of the confusion with new N-E-W. We're not using X-I, Xi, however you want to pronounce it, because X-I is a common last name. And so they're talking about how the Chinese family name Xi is typically written out in English as X-I, same as the name of the Greek letter. And of course, there's one very prominent person with that family name, Chinese President Xi Jinping. Oh, yeah. I can imagine if Biden was the name of a Greek letter, they probably would have skipped past that one, too. (laughs) And I also heard in the statement from the WHO that they have a policy designed to avoid causing offense to any cultural, social, national, regional, professional or ethnic groups. And of course, names are always political as well as practical. So this makes sense. Yeah. So they just skipped right over that and went straight on to Omicron. You said Omicron, but my friend Wikipedia here actually lists three pronunciations. So the one you said, Omicron, the one I said earlier, Omicron, and then one that I think is very weird, Omicron. And maybe that was what was tripping up the folks over there at the Daily. Why are there so many options for pronouncing this letter? Well, I mean, originally, of course, the letters are Greek, so they weren't created with our newer and messier English spelling system in mind. But also, English has a lot of variation in what people do with so-called back vowels, or the ones that are produced towards the back of the mouth. So that explains why some people say ah or oh, for instance. And then also, there's some variation in what people do with the vowel in the second syllable. So some folks say omicron, and some folks apparently say omicron. And with omicron, the vowel in the second syllable is stressed, and it's a diphthong, so it's very long. But if you say the word with a primary stress, like Omicron, then the second vowel is the shorter monophthong, eh, and it's not stressed. Yeah. So lots of different ways you can pronounce this. And actually, President Biden had yet another pronunciation of the word at a press conference last week. And he actually said Omicron with an extra N sound in there. So today I want to take a few moments to talk about the new COVID variant first identified last week in Southern Africa. It's called the Omicron. I've seen the word getting misspelled as Omicron online too. And actually, you know, the confusion is understandable because people are more familiar with words beginning with the Latin prefix omni, meaning all, like omnipresent or omnivore. But Omicron actually breaks down differently. In Greek, it's from omicron, meaning little o, not to be confused with omega, another Greek letter, which literally means large o. And those letters got their names because the Omicron is a short vowel in Greek and Omega is a long vowel. 
Anyway, we'll just have to see what pronunciation people will settle on for Omicron. I think it's going to be Omicron, don't you, as the one people converge on? Yeah, I'm hearing more and more Omicron. And unfortunately, we'll probably get to Omega. So maybe it's better if they have different pronunciations anyway. Yeah, I have a feeling there's going to be trouble lying ahead if we keep using this naming system with those Greek letters that are coming up after Omicron. Yikes. Yeah. What's going to happen when we get to pi? Will it tarnish the reputation of the dessert? (laughs) And what about psi? Will people confuse it with... Yeah, the the Korean... Spelled P-S-I, like psi or psi? Psi. Yeah, P-S-I. Will people confuse it with the Korean pop star? Oh, no. Well, we'll just have to cross those letters when we get to them. And Nicole, I wanted to mention another notable event in the news And that is the passing of the great lyricist and composer Stephen Sondheim at the age of 91. His amazing life's work is being celebrated by fans of musical theater, but the word puzzle community is also looking back fondly on Sondheim's legacy. Among his many achievements, he was chiefly responsible for getting American puzzlers interested in cryptic crosswords. That's a British form of crossword that's heavy on devious wordplay. And I have a piece on Slate about Sondheim's puzzling legacy, and you can find a link to that in the show notes. Well, we'll have to honor Sondheim by doing lots of puzzles, and we have just the right guest to continue the puzzling theme. After the break, we'll be back with Alex Bellos to talk about the Language Lover's Puzzle Book. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Welcome back to Spectacular Vernacular. Our guest today is Alex Bellos, who has the very cool job title of puzzle columnist for The Guardian. Alex has written several books, including Alex's Adventures in Numberland, Can You Solve My Problems, and Perilous Problems for Puzzle Lovers. His latest is called The Language Lover's Puzzle Book, and it recently came out in a new U.S. edition from the New York-based publisher The Experiment. Welcome to the show, Alex. Hi, it's great to be here. Alex, we're really uh, happy to have you on, and the book is great. I really enjoyed delving into it. But in the past, you've concocted a lot of puzzles that are based on what we in the U.S. would call math, what you in the U.K. would call maths. That's right. I'm an interloper here. I'm an interloper. (laughs) Essentially, I'm the math guy. Yeah, and I'm creeping slowly into, um, I guess, linguistics, which is the math bit of language. I mean, I also like language. Many languages spoken at home. I was good at languages. I love languages. Um, but then got diverted by math. And this is, you know, slowly rediscovering my love of languages through this book. And I absolutely loved researching it because it's not in my comfort zone. So it was a real pleasure to find out all these things. How did you first get into this? What first drew you into making these language-based puzzles? I don't make the puzzles. I'm more of a kind of puzzle curator. And so I've had I've got this long-standing math column in The Guardian, a math puzzle column, which every two weeks um, I find some interesting math or logic puzzle. And it's got quite a big audience. And about two, three years ago, I got sent in this amazing puzzle about the Warl Piri, if that's how to pronounce them, a Aboriginal people in Australia 
And it was all about the skin system that they use, um, a kind of the kinship system. Um, and I had no idea. I thought this could have been invented because it seems so complicated. It turns out that they have eight different, they're called skins. Actually, I think that's the anthropological term that is used. And everyone is born into a skin and that determines who you marry and the entire community the most important thing about you is what skin you are. And it was a logic puzzle because it turns out that the mathematical structure of this skin system is really complex. And so I thought, oh, this is fun math, but hey, I'm actually learning something about culture that I never knew. I then tried to find out where this puzzle was from. And actually it was written by a mathematician who had entered the North American Computational Linguistics Olympiad. And it was from NACLO, the Computational Linguistics Olympiad. And this was a kind of gateway for me to discover about this organization and also about the UK Linguistics Olympiad, the Australian Linguistics Olympiad, there are some, there's some in, in um, you know, all over the world. And I found just this wonderful treasure trove of puzzles that no one really knew about. And most of them, well, they're all to do with language, but most of them are mathematical in some way. And often they're about pattern recognition. And in math, sometimes you have these kind of puzzles where you've got to find the pattern. And usually the pattern is so spurious, invented by the puzzle designer, kind of code breaking puzzles, you know, break this code and they tell you some story that you, you know, I really don't get excited by. But this was code breaking puzzles where the code you were breaking is, is another language. So what you're actually discovering is how the kind of the encoding of these other languages. And because the linguistics Olympiads try and be international, they try and make it so that whatever culture you're from that's doing doesn't have an advantage, so that the languages that they're discovering and they're writing about are really obscure, really fascinating, you know, languages spoken by very few people. So all of a sudden you get to understand about language diversity and language history. Um, and I just thought, wow, you could be doing a kind of math logic puzzle and discovering something about the world. And I just thought this is, this is fantastic. And so the treasure trove of linguistics puzzles, now because it's been going for decades, it originally started in, in Russia and actually the Eastern Europeans, the, the, the keenest countries that do these things, there's thousands of these puzzles. So I went through and thought, can I kind of tell some kind of story? Can I kind of go around the world in a hundred puzzles, which is essentially the book. In addition to the Welpiri example that you gave, are there any others that you just were really drawn to in sort of curating these internationally? Or maybe you can tell us about one of the English ones for people who kind of can't wrap their head around it just yet. One of the ones that I got really interested in is ones with unusual um, writing systems or writing systems of which I wasn't aware at all. And I realized that you could kind of tell the history of the alphabet and of writing through these puzzles. I started back with obviously um, cuneiform, the, the first one there is, but also following the growth of the alphabet all the way to Indonesia. And I've got two questions about the writing systems of Indonesia, which to me was kind of amazing just seeing how the alphabet invented only once has managed to travel and you know spread across the globe so that to me was was really interesting one thing that your book does a great job of is presenting the kinds of challenges that linguists actually face when they're figuring out how a language works or how a writing system works and i also like how you sort of cover the gamut of all sorts of things i mean you mentioned 
you know, there's deciphering ancient scripts, but there's also, you do a lot with computational approaches to language, and you even cover invented languages like Dothraki from Game of Thrones. Coming at this from kind of the outsider perspective, was there anything, uh, any aspect of linguistics you found particularly fascinating when you were putting this book together? You talk about, even though these are fun recreational puzzles, they do touch on serious things that linguistics do. And some serious linguistics say it's a bit like Sudoku. And there's one of the puzzles, for example, which essentially is a bit like Sudoku, which has words in the Proto-Germanic, Icelandic, German, and English. And it's done as a big grid. And you've got the words filled in in some of the columns, but some of the rows, but not others. And the o, and you deduce, to, so you fill it in like a Sudoku. And the only way that works is because the way that vowel and consonant changes change over time, change in a completely um, you know, methodical way. You know, if letter A changes to letter B, all A's change to B. And I found that was, to me, was... I didn't realize that was the case. I thought that it would be a lot more random, actually. Um, but to see, to, to realize that that kind of way that spellings and sounds change happen, all the sounds at the same time, from the same thing to the same thing, was really fascinating. So one thing that's nice about the puzzles in the book is you can start with something that seems entirely unfamiliar and exotic, right? So I'd be like, I don't know anything about Icelandic. But then you see the patterns that connect the different languages. And you mentioned the Proto-Germanic, which is the ancestor of all the Germanic languages as a puzzle to solve. And you show that English is a cousin, not just of German and Dutch, but also these less familiar languages like Icelandic. So were you able to see some sort of other fun historical connections along the way? Yeah, there's connections with the shapes of the letters that we use. So to me, it was amazing that the letter A hasn't really changed since um, Egyptian hieroglyphics. So it's the kind of looks like kind of the ox head and then gets turned somewhere along the line. These things which are evident, self-obvious, the things that you see every day, to learn a little bit retracing through the history, to me, was fascinating. Also, there are um, things about meaning were really interesting. One of the puzzles was about um, Yatmul, which is spoken by a few people in Papua New Guinea. And what I do is that I give you a few words, a few meanings, and then I give you some other words. You've got to work out the meaning. And one of them is to realize that the word for car is land canoe, because they had the word canoe, the word land, and for hundreds of years before a car came along. So the car is just the land canoe. And that is something that you use linguistic intuition, but it's just, it's, it's kind of mathematical deduction also. And I found that very, sort of, is both familiarly yet different and it's quite exciting to do those problems. Alex Bellows, thank you so much for joining us. Is there anything else you'd like to tell our listeners about the Language Lovers Puzzle Book? We've covered most of it. I mean, it's got a hundred questions. There are 50 odd languages. There are also number systems, alphabets um, from all over the world. I think it's a great kind of grab bag of language and puzzle fun. I would also say it's a great uh, stocking stuffer if anyone's looking for a good holiday gift for some young person or old person who has an interest in languages or, you know, likes to approach things mathematically. So thank you so much, Alex, for joining us. After the break, it's time for some wordplay. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back. Now it's the time in the show where we play with language. For the last several episodes, we've been bringing on our fellow Slate podcasters to take part in a wordplay quiz. This time, we're very pleased to have with us Amanda Ripley, the new host of Slate's awesome advice podcast, How To. Amanda took over How To a few months ago, and she brings with her a wealth of experience as an investigative journalist and bestselling author. Each episode, Amanda tackles listeners' toughest problems and rounds up experts to help solve them. Personally, I really appreciated this recent one on how to train your dog to stop barking, which is a problem that I have too. (laughs) Welcome to the show, Amanda. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. So Amanda, tell us a little bit about your background in journalism and how you ended up writing about conflict resolution, which sounds like excellent training for hosting an advice podcast. (laughs) You know, I spent about 20 years doing sort of straightforward traditional journalism at Time Magazine and The Atlantic and other places. And about five years ago, I started to realize, hold up, like something is not working here. Journalism is not working the way (laughs) the way it's supposed to. And I don't understand why. So now I'm totally obsessed with understanding the dynamics of really dysfunctional conflict, which we have a lot of (laughs) right now, if you haven't noticed. And that has been incredibly helpful to hang out with people who have been stuck in horrible conflict and have shifted into healthy conflict. So that's kind of my current obsession and really changed the way I think about journalism, which is one of the reasons I I was excited to host the How To Podcast, because it's about listeners' problems And it's not about what I think the problem is or what the producers think the problem is. And we bring them on and we bring them together with the smartest people we can find on the planet and we workshop the problem together. And that feels about right for this moment, sort of low ego, high curiosity. (laughs) That's where I want to aspire to be. So you've written several books and we couldn't help but notice a running theme. Your first book was The Unthinkable, Who Survives When Disaster Strikes and Why?, And then you wrote The Smartest Kids in the World and How They Got That Way. (laughs) And your most recent book is High Conflict, Why We Get Trapped and How We Get Out. So lots of who's and when's and why's and how's. Were you trained as a journalist to focus on question words or the five W's and H's, as they're sometimes called? Nicole, you know, I've never actually noticed that, but you are so right. We have got to break out of the W words for the next book. (laughs) Or maybe that's just your brand. (laughs) Maybe it is. Maybe I should own it. Yeah, no, it is true. Questions are good. Actually, somebody just told me they did some research that you shouldn't start questions with why, which, you know, means we've made some mistakes, but that it somehow puts people on the defensive. I don't know. Do you think that's true? Why do you think that might be true? Well, okay, so I study tone and intonation, so I think it's really about how that why is realized. (laughs) I see, I see. But a why can be off-putting, I imagine, in certain circumstances. Like, why are you so crazy? Like, that's different (laughs) than, why do you feel the way you feel? (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) I see what you mean. Good point. Well, you're definitely continuing the theme with your podcast, since it's how-to, yet another, you know, use of a question word. So... And, you know, we actually have something planned 
just for that. Guess what? This is going to be the theme of our wordplay quiz. We're going to give you clues for phrases that are hiding question words in them. So this is how it's going to work. In each answer, there will be one of those words, who, what, where, when, why, or how, with the letters spelled out consecutively. But be careful because the letters in the question word might jump over a space between words. We'll also give you additional clues if you need them. So don't worry about that. How does that sound to you? That sounds great. I'm for some reason writing down all those words as if that will help you. They're good to keep in mind. Good to keep in mind as you're <laughs> as if I don't thinking know about these. <laughs> <laughs> all right. That sounds fun. Let's do it. Okay. So here's your first clue. We're looking for a two-word phrase with a question word hiding inside of it. The phrase is used for a noisy kind of bird that's named after its piercing call. And its name might remind you of a character from the old TV show Saved by the Bell. Okay. This music is helping. But I'm not like a bird person. Nor am I a Saved by the Bell person. So, can I call a friend? <laughs> it's not that game. <laughs> Maybe we could just tell you what the question word is that you're looking for. Okay. We're looking for how that's hiding in this name of a bird. A two-word name for a bird. Oh, it's a two-word name for a bird. I, I did. Okay, that's an important clue. So the way to think about it might be the piercing call plus the name of a bird a piercing call like a squawk like a uh like close (laughs) like a hawk like a a crow a seagull if you come to a halt what kind of halt (laughs) screeching yeah okay there you go halt a screeching halt there's a bird that screeches a screeching owl you got it. There you go. You put it together. <laughs> Screech Owl. And Screech was a character on Saved by the oh, Bell. Oh, yes, Screech. I did know that on some level. Played by the late Dustin Diamond. Rest in peace, Dustin Diamond. Okay, so now you know how this works. We've got another one for you. We're looking for another two-word phrase with a question word inside. Uh, this phrase can refer to a fresh sense of optimism. And it also appears in the subtitle to one of the Star Wars movies. Okay, so it also appears in the Star Wars. Now, this I have to get. My brother is a huge Star Wars fanatic, so this will be like a personal problem in our family if I don't... Is it New Hope? Yes, indeed. New Hope. You got it. And New Hope, what word is hiding inside New Hope? Who? Who is inside there, yeah. People of a certain generation all know the, you know, Star Wars, the movie that came out in 1977 was just called Star Wars before they retitled it as Star Wars Episode Six: A New Hope. I understand you're from central New Jersey, which is also where I grew up. I was going to give you a hint if you needed it. It's also the name of New a lovely, lovely town right across the Delaware River in Pennsylvania. Absolutely. That's where, like, we used to go for special excursions with my mom when we were little. Do you want to go to New Hope? I don't know why it was considered very fancy. Where did you grow up? I grew up a bit north of there in Hutterton County. Okay, cool. Lots of New Jersey love on Spectacular Vernacular. I'm holding it down for the Midwest, by the way. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So here's another one for you. This two-word phrase, hiding a question word, refers to things that people put on their heads to protect them from the sun. 
There are several different kinds of this headwear, but they're all woven using some form of plant fiber. Okay, so it's not a visor. It's not a sun hat. Mm, that's closer. <laughs> that's closer. A sun, uh, sun shade, sun. It's like one of those floppy hats that I'm supposed to wear so that I don't get skin cancer. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, but then what's it? What's it made out of? Oh, what's it made out of? Is the word hat in the name? Yeah, because if you have hat, what question word do you get? Straw hat. Straw hat. Straw hat. You got it. <laughs> straw hats. And in straw hats, of course, what is hiding? So fun fact, Teddy Roosevelt popularized the Panama style of straw hat when he posed for photos at the Panama Canal construction site in 1906. So, okay, we have one more for you. Now, this time it is a person's name. So first name and last name is what we're looking for. And so that full name is hiding a question word. We are looking for the name of an African-American explorer who went on several Arctic expeditions. He was likely the first person to reach the North Pole, though it took decades for his achievement to be properly recognized. Right. He was the assistant, but he really did all the work, as I recall, to Admiral... Uh, God, what was his name? See, you guys, you don't know this, but I'm terrible at trivia. Like, my family, when they heard I was doing this, they laughed for a long time. Um, my son actually volunteered to help me cheat. Like, he could be at my side. <laughs> and I was like, no, I can't do it. Sorry, but he would know this. We could help you a bit with the last name. Um, this person shares a surname with a Muppet creator and also a star of the TV show Empire, who was just... Henson? Um, uh, Annie Live. Yes. Henson is the last name. Not Jim Henson or Taraji P. Henson, but someone else. Do you know the first name? I should know this. I'm a terrible person. It's okay, but the name conceals when, so you know the last letter of his first name. Ooh, the last letter is W. And the first letter of his name is M. First name of actors Damon and Modine. McConaughey. <laughs> Matthew. There you go. Matthew Henson. Well done, Amanda. Thanks so much for coming on and playing our quiz. Thanks for pushing me out of my comfort zone. And now we have a challenge for all of our listeners. There is a compound word that hides not one, but two question words inside of it. This compound word refers to someone who loves to eat and is also the name of a food website. Here's one final clue. Both parts of the compound word have canine connotations. Think you've got it? Send your answer to us at spectacular at slate.com with quiz in the subject line of your email. Please include both the compound word and the two question words hiding inside of it. From the correct entries, we'll randomly select a winner who will receive a Slate Plus membership for one year. Or if you're already a Slate Plus member, you'll get a one-year extension on your subscription. And we may bring you on the show to face a new wordplay challenge. Once again, that's spectacular at slate.com with quiz in the subject line. And please respond by midnight Eastern time on December 15th. And we're very pleased to announce the winner of the contest from our November 23rd episode. Caroline figured out that a two-word phrase for a precarious kind of rock climbing is free solo. And if you add a C and anagram it, you get the word foreclose. Congratulations, Caroline. Thanks to Amanda Ripley for joining us. That's it for this week. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
If you're subscribing on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review us while you're there. It helps other listeners find the show. And please consider subscribing to Slate Plus. Slate Plus members get benefits like full access to all the articles on Slate.com, zero ads on any Slate podcast, and bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn, Dakota Ring, and One Year. It's only $1 for the first month. To learn more, go to Slate.com slash Spectacular Plus. Thanks again to Alex Bellows for being our guest this week. Spectacular Vernacular is produced by Jasmine Ellis. Asha Saluja is managing producer and Gabriel Roth is editorial director for Slate Podcasts. We'll be back in two weeks with more Spectacular Vernacular. Thanks for listening.